0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: We have got to stop him. And the other side of this is if they let Ken go, he's acting recklessly. He's trying to kill people by firing his gun at him, if he gets away and he comes in contact with the public, people are going to say, how could the police let him get
1: away? Hi, I'm Yardley. This is Detective Dan. Hey there. And his identical twin brother, Detective Dave. Hello. And this is Small Town Dicks.
3: You'll hear detectives from small towns around the world discuss their most memorable cases.
2: We cover the intimate details of what went wrong and what went right.
1: As these dedicated men and women search for justice and crack the case.
2: Names and certain details have been changed to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. So please join us in
3: maintaining their anonymity out of respect for what they've been through.
1: Thank Thank you. you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we are so lucky to have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dave. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's good to see you. It's
3: a pleasure to be here, as (laughs) always. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Thank you, Daniel.
1: (laughs) And we have Detective Dan. I'm here. You are here,
2: as always.
1: Okay, all right then. Back down, and Small Town Fam. We are so pleased to welcome back to the podcast Detective Chad.
4: Hello. Thanks for having me back.
1: Thanks for coming back. So, Chad, you have a really interesting case.
4: Interesting case,
1: yes. Why don't you just start? Tell us how this case came to you.
4: Well, this started with a traffic stop that one of our patrol deputies made in one of our contract cities about midnight, I think. He sees a vehicle, looks suspicious, it runs a stop sign. So he initiates a traffic stop. He checks out, gives a license plate number to dispatch. As he's out of his car and walking up, the report comes back from dispatch that the license plates are stolen, which would suggest the car is probably stolen also. So he stops, and at that point, the driver looks out the driver's side window, looks back at the deputy, puts it in gear, and stomps on the gas and takes off. So the deputy initiates a pursuit with him, and it's going on the highway away from town. It's pretty high speed. Speeds are around 90, up to 100 at some points, but there's no traffic. It's a summer night, clear roads, that section of the highway is basically flat and straight. So he stays with the pursuit. Other deputies are coming, trying to get out there to help him out. And he sees a flash and recognizes, that's a muzzle flash. This guy's shooting at me. And uh, this deputy, he recognizes the muzzle flash. He was in the military. He's seen gunfire coming his way before. So he backs off, stays with the guy still, but backs off, slowing up, you know, waiting for more deputies to catch up, or state police if they're out in that area. And he continues the chase, but way slacked off. The suspect turns onto a side road, rural country road, that eventually turns into a gravel road. The deputy stays with him up to the gravel road, and then, like I said, it's a dry summer night, so the lead car, the stolen car, is kicking up lots of dust. And so the deputy has to slow down more. He can't see when dust gets kicked up like that, it's kind of like fog in that your emergency lights that are ridiculously bright, red and blue lights on our police cars, hit that dust like they hit fog and it reflects back and so... It's even worse. It's almost a disservice to you. It amplifies everything.
3: It's like hitting your brights in the fog. It doesn't help
4: the situation at all. Right. So he slacks off some more and then they determine they're not going to chase this guy anymore. We assume stolen cars, not worth the risk.
1: Is the deputy in the car by himself?
4: Yes. And there's concern that maybe this guy, he's already shot at him. Maybe he's going to pull over and set up and wait and like ambush him if he keeps chasing him because it's a windy gravel mountain road. So he would have the ability to set up an ambush. So they disengage the pursuit. I mean, they do the right thing. And so the deputy goes back, writes his report up. I come to work the next morning. And for whatever reason, my regular partner wasn't working that day. He took the day off. So it was just me and my boss working. It was a Friday. And my boss tells me it's a, Detective Carl tells me, we got to work on this right now. This is what happened. He gives me the report. The patrol guys had tried to figure out who the driver was trying to identify the suspect. They just didn't have enough information. And really, the deputy only got just a flash glimpse of the guy's head as he looked out the window. So they're not able to figure things out. So the area that's pursuit is west of the biggest town in our county, biggest city in our county, and a coastal town, correct? Yeah, it's between the two, yes. Okay. And uh, we start crawling through the computer looking for stuff. Well, we had that stolen license plate that he gave on the traffic stop. And we were able to find, with the larger city's department, they had a call for service that had that license plate in the call the day prior to this shooting.
1: So, two days before this high-speed car chase.
4: Correct. And the call originated from a tire shop in the city. So, that's the only lead we had.
1: Does the license plate match the car it's attached to? No.
4: No. The plates were stolen from a different car.
1: Oh, and put on this stolen car that was involved in the chase.
3: Yes. Yeah, and sometimes these guys, they'll steal a plate off of a Subaru and they'll put it on a Honda. Other times, if they're smart, they steal it off a Honda Accord and they put the stolen plate onto a Honda Accord. And that way, the hope is that The car's already been stolen, but now they've got this new plate, and maybe the owner of the stolen plate hasn't reported it yet. So when you run that plate, it comes back to a Honda, doesn't raise suspicion, and it's not reported stolen yet.
1: That seems like more planning than I would give these car thieves credit for.
4: Lots of crooks do it, yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay, carry on.
4: Yeah, so we go to the tire shop, and talking to those guys, get some info, but gave only a first name.
1: And what was that name?
4: Ken. He was trying to buy one tire for the stolen car. That was nice of him. But I don't think he had any money. He didn't actually buy the tire. But they tell us that he walked across the street to the 7-Eleven. So we pull video from there, and we got his girlfriend's name. She used her EBT card. EBT? Food stamps. Just on a credit card.
1: Okay.
3: Yeah, you run these food stamp cards, and it's just like running a debit card or an ATM card. You can get the transaction amount. You can get the transaction date and timestamp, and that's how you can match up. Okay, at this time, this was used at this store, and
4: now the video shows, okay, these are the people we're looking for.
1: Got it. What's Ken's girlfriend's name?
4: Lindy. So we collect the video from the 7-Eleven and get the info we had, go back, verify that Ken is the guy driving that car, and then we jump on... Lindy's Facebook, find her friends, pull his picture up. The guys at the tire shop say, yeah, that's him. That's Ken. Right away, we figure out that Lindy's address is in a little town between where we're at and the coast. It's about 15 or so miles east of the coast. And that Ken also has that address associated to him now that we know his name. It's not his residence, but it's in his record. And they both are on supervision with parole probation. What is that? So they've been convicted of something. And part of the process for being released is they have a probation officer.
1: Okay. Do you know what they've been convicted of?
4: One of the things he was convicted of was a narcotics crime. I don't recall what Lindy was. So right away, Detective Carl and I are like, we got to go check this out. So we drive over to that little town. On the way there, I just happened to hear on the police radio that there's two parole and probation officers over there. They share our radio channel with us.
1: You mean there are two parole and probation officers at Ken and Lindy's house you're heading there?
4: Yeah. So we contact them by radio and meet with them. Well, it turns out they were going to that same address to check on Ken. Not because of the shooting, but just doing their monthly or whatever their interval checks for him are. Total coincidence.
2: So P&P, parole and probation, they're doing a home visit on Ken. Yeah, they do them all day long. So we meet with them, go over there,
4: and Ken and Lindy aren't there speak to some family members they had been there maybe an hour earlier we just barely missed them the family give you an idea about what kind of uh vehicle they're in yeah it was the stolen car they describe it can rattle can it black and also use that spray on do-it-yourself urethane bedliner stuff
1: why what's that what is this rattle can
4: spray paint so he had spray painted this car black it was blue when it was stolen we figure that out later so they described the car and it matches the description the deputy gave of the car he chased. And it also fit with the tire shop and all that stuff. So we're confident it's the right deal. But the family doesn't know where they're at. They absolutely want us to find Ken and put him in jail. It's Lindy's family and they don't like Ken. So we tracked down Ken's mom. We tracked down her address. We never do talk to her. We found her apartment. If she was in there, she didn't come to the door. And so we're out of Leeds. So Detective Carl and I head back to town to our office and I put out an officer safety bulletin and sent it out to all agencies in our state. Because this guy's obviously dangerous. He's shooting at the police. That bulletin had his picture, description of the car, just a synopsis of what happened. You know, he, on a traffic stop, shot at a deputy. So that went out. I remember getting that email from Chad. It went around our department like, oh, shit.
3: Guy's like popping off rounds at cops on traffic stops. Okay.
2: That's one of those bulletins that you pay a lot of attention to.
3: It goes on our briefing board and every shift of patrol that goes out is going to read that before they start their shift.
2: And I've got a project for the night. Yeah. I'm looking for this car. I'm going to find this car.
4: Yeah, everybody wants to find it. So that was a Friday. Coincidentally, Saturday and Sunday, the following two days, we had training scheduled over in the little town where Lindy's mom lived. It was driving training. There's a old lumber mill over there that has a huge parking lot that we use for driving training. So there's probably 15 deputies over there and driving instructors and all that stuff.
1: Is that for like tactical driving?
4: It kind of ranges everything from just normal driving to emergency driving. Right. We have like a backing course because most police
3: crashes involve backing up. So we have a backing course where you, you have to qualify It's a cone course where if you hit any cones, you fail, you got to do it again. And it's pretty intricate, like backing up, pulling into hairpin turns while you're backing up, parallel parking. It's all about angles, creating angles and using your mirrors, all of that. Another part of the training would be high speed lane changes. So, say you're flying and all of a sudden there's debris in the road or there's a car that's stalled or stopped, and you have to do a high-speed lane change, you practice that. There's another course that's all about driving forward at pursuit or emergency vehicle-type speeds where you have to stay within the cones. It's basically, show me that you have the ability to drive this car safely at high speeds. And it's annual maintenance. You have to qualify. If you don't, you have to keep doing the
2: test. Interesting. Or you go to remedial. What's that? Remedial training. That's where they... (laughs) They pull you off. You get some one-on-one time. You get some one-on-one time with one of the driving instructors, and it's usually fairly emasculating. (laughs) And what the hell is wrong with you? Do you know how to drive a car?
3: Come on, I drive all day, every day. Right. It's like when you're 16 and you have to go back to your friends, they go, did you get your license? And you're like, I failed the driver's test.
2: (laughs) It sucks.
4: So, I mean, this was scheduled out months ahead of this. So it was just coincidental. There's a bunch of cops in this little town.
1: All in one place.
4: Yeah, all together, which never happens for us unless we're at training because we're spread to the four corners of the compass all the time. So they have training all day. They finish. One of our deputies who's pretty known for being able to find people, he's a forest deputy, and he has a pickup. And him and the other forest deputy were the last two coming out of the training to go home. So they were all getting on the highway. And he had made a comment on Friday night before I went home when I saw him. I said, go find that car. He says, you know, I will. Well, he was right. So they're pulling out of the area where the training was, and he's got to go get some gas because he ran his truck through the course all day long. So he heads down, flicks his blinker on a turn. As he's getting ready to turn into the gas station, the car passes going the other way on the highway.
1: The stolen car. The
4: stolen car, guy in it driving, female in the passenger seat.
1: No way. No way. I mean, what are the odds that Ken is driving in his stolen car and just happens to pass this forest deputy when everyone is finishing up training? That's just, I don't know. That seems like the universe.
4: Right. So his partner's in a pickup just like his right behind him.
1: The forest deputy's partner.
4: Yes. Although his truck wasn't driven on the course all day, so it had a full tank of gas. Before they even get their trucks turned around... The stolen cars, like upwards of 90 plus, 100 miles an hour, getting away. He recognized who he passed. Meanwhile, a whole string of other deputies that were ahead of those guys had turned the corner to head back to the valley and didn't see all this, just by luck that they were the last two out of the gate, that they were the ones that saw him. So the pursuit goes, and it's headed west towards the coast, and it's high speed. Ken's driving, crazy driving. There's a way station there on the highway where they weigh log trucks and stuff that are paved on the side of the road. Ken takes the way station and passes up a stack of cars and then cuts them back off. Super aggressive. Very. And dangerous. Yes. And then shortly after that, Ken stomps on the brakes and does a U-turn. And now he's going eastbound on the highway. The pickups have their emergency lights on, but there's still cars on the shoulder. No one's really sure what's going on. The two deputies get their trucks turned around. By that point, some of the deputies who had left and made that turn to go back to the valley, they're hearing this. They're coming back. The pursuing deputies tell him, you know, we're going eastbound, and he takes a different highway.
1: One of the deputies in pursuit takes a different highway?
4: That's right.
3: So one highway keeps going north. Another highway goes to the east towards town. So the one that goes north kind of skirts through this mountainous area,
4: and it's narrow, right? There's a river to the right. It's narrow, and it's rural, and it's all woods. And so one of the deputies who had heard this and turned around preemptively thought, I'm going to stop here on this narrow highway in case the suspect comes back towards me and throw spikes. The deputy's got his vehicle off the road. He's got his spikes out, ready to throw them. And the suspect does go that way. Well, deputy throws his spikes out. Suspect shoots at him as he's driving past him and hits the spikes. Tires start to deflate like they do, but he keeps going. And just a short distance past where he can get the spikes, there's a gravel road that is horrible, like an unmaintained gravel road that connects back towards the coast. Just before Ken gets to there, he slows down and then Lindy either jumps out or he pushes her out. We never really could clean that up because the one deputy who was there to see it was hiding behind his car because dude's shooting at him. So she gets out of the car and he proceeds to drive on the rims down the road a little ways. Lindy jumps up and she's dancing in the middle of the street, stopping the two pursuing police vehicles. Completely stops one of them, and then the other truck's able to get around her.
1: Is it dark?
4: No, it's middle of the
3: day, like three in the afternoon. This is a summer day. I remember it clearly. It was blue skies, nice weather. And over in that area, there's all kinds of tourism. You know, people on dune buggies, people going to the coast. So it was busy. It was a high traffic day that day. And now you've got Lindy. It gives you some insight into what was going on in the car. She gets out of the car and she's
4: running interference for Ken so Ken can get away. Right. So while all this is happening, it's a weekend. I'm on a day off. I'm just pulling into my driveway and my phone rings and it's my boss. It's Detective Carl. He's like, hey, they're chasing Ken again over at the coast and he's shooting at us again. If you want to go, you're authorized to go to work. Hell yeah, I want to (laughs) go. Our car doesn't even stop in the driveway. I'm out the door, running in the house, grab my equipment, jump in my work truck. I'm off. Boom,
2: going. When you get this call, you're how far away? How many miles away are you? 55, probably. Gives you an idea of how spread out they are.
1: Right, I see. So you're a solid hour from mm. this pursuit. No,
2: <laughs> no, 50 miles. It's
4: better to call out the distance <laughs> yeah, than the time. Fair enough, okay. I got there pretty quick. So I got going that way. So now I have my radio when I'm listening. At this horrible gravel road, Ken parks across the highway there in that car because there's no tires left. He hit the spikes and all that. And there's a gentleman who had just, private party sale, bought a used pickup further up the highway. So the pickup truck's coming south, coming towards Ken. Ken carjacks the pickup truck at gunpoint. The gentleman stops because he doesn't know what's going on. The next thing you know, he's got this guy with a pistol pointed at him. Get out of the truck. Ken steals this guy's brand new used pickup and goes up that horrible gravel road. And by that point, one of the deputies had gotten around Lindy, who was... Trying to stop them. So the road kind of cuts back at an angle on the highway, and the deputy looks up, and Ken's got the pistol pointed out the driver's window. So the deputy's like scrunched down in his car and trying to get off the road because he thinks this guy's going to shoot at him. He's already been shooting at multiple cops now. Ken doesn't shoot for whatever reason at that point. The pursuit continues up this gravel road, and I can't even describe how tight these switchbacks are on this gravel road. I went back and redrove it after the fact because I wasn't familiar with this road very well. It's super steep. Super heavy washboard gravel road. You're just shaking the whole time. And the switchbacks are like 180-degree switchbacks. They're full back on themselves. And it's narrow. And it's straight drop on one side and trees on the other side. Ken is flying up and then down that road. So the deputies, much like the previous deputy who had to slack off because he couldn't see, same issue.
1: Because too much gravel dust?
4: Yeah. They lose him eventually. So they follow the road... And the one pickup truck that needed gas, the patrol truck, it really needed gas. So he has to stop. He jumps in his partner's truck with him. So there ends up being two of them in one vehicle, which is not normally how we run patrol vehicles. We just don't have enough people. So they wind up in the same truck. That gravel road connects to a paved county road and they don't know which way he went.
1: So Ken has successfully given them the slip.
4: Yes. And so by this time, a ton of other of those guys that were at training have showed up and get in the area and they're just driving on these roads. There's just rural country roads and a 911 call comes in and it's somebody saying, a guy just showed up in this white truck, let himself into my house, pointed a gun at me and demanded my car keys.
1: What? Walked into the guy's house.
4: And the guy was there with just him and I believe it was his wife. There was just only two of them there. So he gives Ken the keys to what turns out to be like the most armored up car you can buy, a Subaru Outback made out of like armor rated steel, I think. So that's the second car Ken steals that day in this pursuit. So he leaves and the victim of that, he doesn't know which direction he went from there.
3: Right. You're playing catch up now. This guy's committed two armed robberies. You're waiting for this 911 call to come in. Meanwhile, you've got these deputies doing an area search and they might've already passed Ken. Ken's now in
4: the third vehicle and nobody knew to look for it yet. And you've got all these patrol cars just swarming like hornets in this good sized geographic area but there's not a whole lot of roads out there you know, you might go for miles and not have a turn off of the main road but they're out there just driving around we get the 911 call and about that time that dispatch airs that information out that Ken's now in this green outback one of the deputies passes him going the opposite way so they get turned around and one of the deputies catches up and is behind him and is in pursuit now
1: Are these the two deputies in the truck?
4: No, they catch up later. This is a different guy. The deputy that is the lead car in the pursuit at this point, he was one of the instructors for the driving training. And so he just has T-shirt. He has his pistol, but doesn't have his body armor on. He was just going for the day to teach guys how to drive cars fast.
1: This seems risky. Yeah,
4: it is. So that pursuit continues south on that road that leads to the city on the coast.
1: So is Ken now basically headed back toward Lindy?
4: No, he's not. She's actually at that point in an ambulance because she got hurt when she either jumped or was shoved out of the car. Road rash. Yeah, pretty bad too. She went to the hospital.
3: Hey folks, Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe home security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break-in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens and flood and fire detection. like simply safe.
1: Hey, small town fam. It's Yardley. It's going to be summer soon. So the potential for stinky pits is imminent. That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me. Lumi is baking soda-free, paraben-free, and pH-balanced, so it's safe for your pits and your bits which means you can use it below the belt. They have a lovely variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine, my favorite, lavender sage, or toasted coconut. And the secret to Lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid. That's how it stops odor before it starts. So, small-town fam, Lumi Starter Pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid-stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is SMALLTOWN. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code SMALLTOWN for 15% off your first purchase at LumiDeodorant.com. That's code SMALLTOWN at L-U-M-E Deodorant.com. Do it. of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. That's right. You get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it.
4: So the pursuit's going. And by this point, the word's out that we're chasing Ken again. Everyone's read that bulletin I sent out. So the coastal city, they all think it's just a lone deputy chasing this guy. So the city's calling out extra resources. State police is sending people from the valley. They were further away than I was. And the county to the south of us finds out that we're chasing him. They got my bulletin. They know who he is and why we're looking for him, because he's shooting at people. So they send three cars up from the nearest patrol office they have to our county. So we've got multiple agencies trying to coordinate, nobody talking on the same radio channel.
1: Why is that?
3: You use different radio channels. So county has their own bank of channels. Our agency has their own bank. The county to the south of us is going to have a different bank of channels, and they're not always interoperable.
4: For instance, our radio system that the sheriff's office has, and Dan and Dave City, they're partners, and we can all talk to each other. Essentially, it's a multi-agency radio network, but the smaller cities aren't on that.
2: So we have digital radios. Some of these smaller agencies have analog radios.
4: Analog or different digital that doesn't talk to ours.
1: That's weird.
4: Well, it's controlled by FCC based on how big... Your agency isn't how far you have to push signals so that they don't cross over. And it's weird. I don't get all of it. But some of these small places don't even have the ability to dial up to our channel. It'll be where dispatch
3: for a certain agency will be proactive about reaching out. In this case, they'd reach out without even being prompted to. They, recognizing our deputy needs help, this is the nearest jurisdiction, they'll reach out to that other police department and say, hey, we've got one of our guys in a chase. He's being shot at. They're headed your direction. And that gives them the heads up that they need to be in the area and look for
4: a county unit that's got its lights on chasing a car. And they'll have the description of the car and all that and directions and stuff. Meanwhile, we still have a deputy chasing Ken. And we have some in-car video of the kind of tail end of this chase because... One of the Coast City's officers gets in right behind the deputy that's leading the chase. So Ken stops in the middle of this county road and kind of leans out the window and shoots. The first deputy stops, gets out, shoots back at Ken. And they're quite a ways away, 35, 40 yards apart. So they exchange gunfire. And then Ken gets back in his car, puts it in drive. The chase is on again.
1: So nobody gets hit.
4: Nobody gets hit. Deputy jumps back in his car. The Coastal car that has the video in it is right behind him. Ken stops again. Instead of getting out of the car, he shoots out the back window, and you can see the window blow out of the back of the car. Deputy gets out, returns fire. Ken takes off. Deputy puts it back in drive. The coastal officer shoots also during that encounter, and they're hitting the car, just not stopping Ken, clearly. He stops a third time. By that point, another deputy is caught up, so there's three cops, and they're a long ways away now. They're more like 50, 60, 70 yards apart now. They're not getting close anymore. Nobody's wanting to do that. So they're shooting. They're hitting the car and everything. Still nobody gets hit. Ken gets back in the car, puts it in drive, takes off again. It's
3: just a rolling gun battle where you get these volleys of gunfire. The deputies are hitting Ken's car Ken is kind of wildly firing. We call it spray and pray, basically. And Ken's marksmanship is not present. He's not hitting
4: anything. He doesn't even hit the cars that are chasing him. But he is shooting at them, for sure.
1: And your deputies, are they shooting to hit Ken? Are they shooting to hit the tires out?
4: They're trying
3: to stop the threat. That guy is shooting. What if he makes it into a city? What's he going to do? He's already shooting at multiple cops. I mean, even cops that are just standing on the side of the road. So this is one of those where... You will chase this guy to the end of the earth to get him
2: off the streets. So there are a couple factors here for me. Ken can use his car as a weapon. Also, he can use his gun as a weapon. He's already showed the willingness to carjack people and do a home invasion robbery. And one of the things that we say in law enforcement is robbery is like a sneeze away from murder.
1: Why do you say that?
2: Because when robberies go bad, people die. We have got to stop him. And the other side of this is if they let Ken go, he's acting recklessly. He's trying to kill people by firing his gun at him. If we let him go, if he gets away and he comes in contact with the public, people are going to say, how could the police let him get away? We just can't. He has to be stopped. And they spike stripped him. It didn't stop him. Right. I mean, Ken is making all the decisions here. Everybody involved in this would love if Ken just pulled over and surrendered. Of course. That's the best outcome for everybody. Right. And so
4: after that third volley, he's back in the car driving again. And as they're getting closer to the main highway, the deputies from the county down south of us are showing up at that intersection, trying to figure out where they want to be deployed. One of the city officers, just short of, the main highway set up a position and threw spikes across the road again as ken comes barreling through that intersection he shoots at that officer hits the spikes and i think it took out three of the tires as he approaches the main highway he makes a right turn and ken is headed into much more densely populated space and then the deputy who had been the lead car for most of the pursuit was a driving instructor he's also a pit instructor for stopping cars He goes up and does the pit maneuver on the car.
1: What's a pit maneuver? It's
4: where you use your car to bump the rear portion of the suspect's vehicle to cause it to spin out. And it's supposed to make the engine die. Right. It's
3: pursuit intervention technique. You see it on Los Angeles live police chases where they spin the car. And the force of spinning the car
4: oftentimes will make the engine die in that car. And you can stop the pursuit. So he does the pit maneuver on Ken. You can see it in the video. The car does a full 360 doesn't die and just keeps driving forward.
1: So Ken takes off again.
4: Yeah. He's on rims, though. Yeah. There's stacks of cars coming the opposite direction because it's summer, weekend at the coast. People are coming back from their trip or whatever.
1: So regular civilians are coming toward him.
4: Yeah. There's a ton of cars. And the cars going west, the same direction as Ken's going, are stopped by the responding officers coming down the highway. They're blocking that off. But there's not anybody left to stop traffic the other direction because everyone's in this thing now. Presumably, they see the emergency lights and there's just a line of cars stopped on the shoulder of the road. They don't know what's going on. The two deputies that were together in the force patrol pickup truck, that truck has a very big steel grill protector bumper thing on it. He decides we have to stop this car. He actually swings wide and just collides into the car, just T-bones it and drives the car sideways and pins it against the jersey barrier on the highway there so it can't go anywhere.
1: What's a jersey barrier? Is that like a guardrail?
4: In between freeways, the divider. So they get the car stopped because everyone knows we can't let Ken get into town where he's way likely to hit somebody. Maybe not the police, but he's going to hit somebody with this gunfire that he's just throwing out the windows of this stolen car. So as soon as they get him stopped, they get out. Ken's in there moving around in this green outback. He's got a pistol So there's a huge volume of fire that goes into this car. Oh, and? Ken no longer presents as a threat, and so they
3: advance on the car. Uh, There's no more shots coming from Ken. It's likely he's either been
4: incapacitated or mortally wounded. Okay. Yeah. They approach slowly, determine that he's deceased, not a threat anymore.
1: So I'd like to play devil's advocate here for a second. Ken in this rolling gun battle is firing at police, but he doesn't actually hit any police. Does that factor into your decisions about how to handle this situation, ultimately?
2: So Ken has demonstrated a willingness to shoot at the police. He's got a disregard for human life. I think that's pretty evident in this case. And we've been very lucky that he hasn't hit anyone. Now he's cornered. He's pinned up against the Jersey Barrier. Do we think now that he's cornered that he's not going to pick up his gun and start firing at the police? Right. Of course he is. Unfortunately for Ken, the police got shots off before he did. But fortunately for the public, this whole thing is now over. I mean, eventually he's going to hit someone. And if it's a civilian in this case, and we had an opportunity to stop this and we didn't, we're just damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. And I've seen the photos from this incident, the cars that were oncoming, they're like right there.
1: These are civilians who are coming back from the beach.
2: Where traffic stops, where this whole situation comes to an end. I've seen the photos. Civilian cars are right there. Right. It's a two-lane highway. It's heavily traveled. I mean, it's 55 miles an hour.
1: But there's no way for those civilians coming back from the beach, minding their own business, there's nowhere for them to go, to hide. There's like not a turnoff.
2: No, and I mean, it ended where it ended, and it ended how it had to end in this situation. Unfortunately, I mean, none of those officers wanted to take Ken's life. I guarantee none of these officers woke up on this day of the incident and said, I hope I get to fire my weapon at another human being today.
1: Right. Because a lot of officers go through their whole career and never fire their weapon.
2: You hope that you never have to shoot your gun on duty. You hope.
0: Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. At that point,
4: everything kind of stops. They just got to push pause. Pause. I show up probably seconds after that, and then Detective Dave comes over, and a whole bunch of guys from our deadly force investigation team come over, and we worked probably till five or six in the morning on that. That was a long one, because you've got so many different scenes where deputies and officers were using deadly force. Or were the recipient of Ken using deadly force on them.
3: Right. So we were spread out all over the place. I remember just little teams going off to different areas of where these shootings were, and... That was a big call-out. Like, we had a bunch of people working. My responsibility was the end of the pursuit, basically where Ken turns onto the main highway and is heading back towards town right before he gets spun by the deputies. 200 yards from that turn to the initiation of the pit maneuver to where we blocked off this stretch of highway. And you've got shell casings, you've got pieces of... Ken's vehicle that he's driving. You've got all kinds of evidence. And I remember trying to get civilian traffic out of the area and trying to get this locked down. I mean, it's the only artery into this town. So we have now effectively shut it down for the next probably 10 hours. On a summer weekend. Yeah. And there's some workarounds in that part of the city, but it took a while to get those detours all figured out. And Ken, when these deputies at the end of this, Police chase when the deputies in the truck finally pin him up against this concrete barrier. There's officers out on foot that are within 10 or 15 feet of his car, not knowing if this guy's just going to hunker down and start pouring rounds out of the car.
2: The risk you have is if he's able to escape his car, you've got this train of cars that are heading your direction that are pulled over on the side of the road. And if Ken starts shooting at the deputies who are chasing him and they return fire and they miss, those bullets are going downrange at these cars. Or he's already
4: demonstrated his willingness to carjack. Yeah. And it was dozens of cars at one point that were stopped there before we could get the logistics of the detour figured out. But it was just mom and dad and their kids going for a day at the coast or people that had gone out crabbing or fishing or whatever. And so it was very apparent that everyone was on the same page that we can't let can get into the city or have access to more
2: people. One of the things we have to weigh when we're deciding on using force is what is this person's offense that they've committed and are they a danger to the public if they avoid arrest? So if they're able to make it into the general population, are they still going to pose a risk? And obviously this guy has checked those boxes. Yeah, it's
3: ongoing threat. This one is one of those easy ones. After he starts shooting at cops and he's
4: carjacking people, the rules of engagement are fairly simple. Right. And like Dave was saying... This is one huge crime scene, but it's separated out into individual crime scenes spread out over like six and a half miles, I think. And that's just the part on the road where they exchange gunfire, where he committed the first carjack and shot at the deputy was like 15 miles away from where this ended. So we're spread out everywhere trying to collect evidence. We find out later that some of the people along the road, before we could get there to collect shell casing evidence and stuff, they had gone out and got that for mementos and keepsakes. Oh, geez. This is the day I witnessed the cop shootout. Yeah. Souvenirs. Yeah.
1: Dave, when you go to investigate these pockets of crime scenes, what you're collecting are these shell casings and photographing the actual location and documenting the map basically of this pursuit. Is that so?
3: Absolutely. It was just a trail of evidence for 10 to 15 miles. Wherever there was a shooting, our investigation team visited that site, collected evidence, preserved it with photos and scanning that area. That way we can recreate it. These shootings or deadly force incidents involving police officers. There's usually a civil complaint component to it, where the family of the person who had deadly force used against him, in this case, Ken, sometimes families want to sue the police for what they deem is an unreasonable use of force. And this one, Ken is acting like he's the only person on the road and he's just shooting at cops and there's no civilians around. We have other ones that are gray areas. So you have to preserve all of that because the minute you leave that scene, it's gone and you can never get it back.
1: Right. Right. Did his family at all pursue a suit against the police? They did not. Do you know if he was on drugs when he went on this spree?
4: Actually, he was. Lindy tells us later in an interview at the hospital that not only was Ken shooting at the cops, during the first part of the chase, before he was shooting at the cops, he was injecting methamphetamine in his arm while driving at pursuit speeds.
1: Wow.
4: Right. So he's juiced. We get all of that. Again, it's another
3: investigator getting sent off to the hospital. We need to talk to Lindy and find out what was going on in that car, where they've been, what state of mind Ken was in. So I remember we sent people off to the hospital to deal with that. We started handling evidence and documenting that crime scene. We did a 3D scan of that crime scene, as I recall. And then at some point, my piece of this is an investigator from our neighboring agency, Detective Chris. He and I were tasked with giving a death notification to Ken's mother. And Ken's mother lives in this coastal town. And I had heard information that she was aware that the police were looking for Ken and she had not answered the door when the police were at her door on this most recent visit within a day or so. And when I showed up with Detective Chris, she had neighbors. The word of mouth through this city, I mean, it's quick. People are like, something big happened And news reports started coming out. I think mom knew that it was Ken that was probably involved in that. And we broke the news to her sensitively. And she did not seem surprised. She was not hateful towards the police. She understood what Ken had done as far as posing at risk to police officers and the general public. Obviously, she's just lost her son. She was subdued and upset, but she wasn't hateful towards
4: us or anything like that. I felt bad for the mom.
1: Mm, Sure. And what about Lindy? What became of Lindy?
4: So, ultimately, she wasn't charged with anything in this case.
1: Even though she tried to obstruct your pursuit of Ken.
4: Yeah, there was a significant debate about that. Ultimately, it was kind of a small fish type thing. It wasn't that big a deal. Has she learned enough from this experience? Uh, no. I think she was just recently involved in a child abuse case. Oh, dear.
1: Does she have children?
4: Yes. I think she had one with Ken, and then she had other children from prior to Ken. Okay. DHS was heavily involved with her children's life as well. And we learned in her interview after the fact that we did, in fact, miss Lindy and Ken at the house Detective Carline went to on Friday by about an hour, like we thought, And that they had gone further up the highway into the woods area to an unimproved campground. They were camping and swimming in the river that day and using methamphetamine.
1: So that was the plan, just to sort of go and have a night of smoking meth and sleeping in the woods?
4: Yep, and that's where they were coming from when they drove past the deputies initially turning into the gas station. They had left the campground and drove down the highway and past the
2: deputies.
1: Ugh. Lindy and Ken just made one bad decision after another that day, didn't they?
2: So unfortunately, what all of us have seen, Dave, Chad, and I, and everybody else that's been on this podcast, what we see is that these people who are gripped by addiction, unfortunately, sometimes fall into this cycle, this loop where it's chase a bag for their next high, experience their high, and then it's on to how do I get my next bag, It's really unfortunate that these drugs grab a hold of these people's lives, and it can change them. Not everybody who goes out and gets high is going to commit crimes. We know that, but sometimes they do. And unfortunately, us in law enforcement, that's when we encounter them. We don't encounter them when they're in their living room just sitting on their couch. We encounter them when they're out stealing to support their high we encounter them sometimes when they're doing robberies. We encounter them when they're committing violent crimes. That's just the reality of it. All of us in law enforcement, we just hope that they get help or they get to the point in their life where they know they need help.
1: Sure, and then they're able to get that help.
2: Yeah, we've got to make the help available. Right.
1: Really, what a um, that's just a story of loss.
2: It's one of those things,
4: like, if I hadn't been there or had seen the video or been a part of it, you almost wouldn't believe it. This is like the stuff that writers in Hollywood put on paper and make movies or TV shows out of and people think that's how cop work is. We'll probably never see something like this again in our area. I can only think of one other incident that was similar to this, but not to this extent, not this drawn out, not this many engagements. We'll likely not see something like this again because it's just so out of the norm. It's another reminder these
3: folks who are drug-affected, Addicted, we hear the argument that drug use is a victimless crime. No, it's not. They got the bag somehow. Usually it's from stealing from a family member or somebody else. They got the drugs. And we've seen on this podcast numerous times what people under the influence of methamphetamine do they lose their minds. Not all of them do, but this guy went on a meth binge and started shooting at the police and others. We've had guys that claim to have seen demons, and they murder their significant other. It's not a victimless crime. Trust me, it impacts their significant other and then all their families. Suspect and victim side both. Affects all of them.
1: There's a domino effect. Right. Wow. Well, Chad, thank you so much for bringing this to us today. Thank you for having me. So interesting.
2: Thank you, Chad. Thanks, Chad. I wish I would have been there for that investigation. You had retired, I think. I just retired, yeah. Quit. I wasn't going to say it. Do you think there's a reason why I quit, Dave?
1: Ineffective? You?
2: (laughs) Game got too fast for you?
1: Oh, for crying out loud. All right. Knock it off, brothers. Um, That's it. I'm just, I'm pulling it. We're done. Thank you again, gentlemen.
2: Thank you, sir. Thank
0: you.
1: Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Soren Bajan, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor, The Real Nick Smitty, and Alec Cowan. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan. And our books are Cooked and Cats Wrangled by Ben Cornwell.
2: If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com.
1: Smalltown Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com.
2: And join the Small Town Fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at small Town Dicks, We love hearing from you.
3: And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash Podcast.
1: That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country
2: in search of the finest rare true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam.
1: Nobody's better than you.